Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Chapter 3, starting in verse 13. We are uh, continuing our journey through the letter of James, which is actually an ancient sermon. In fact, this letter of James, this ancient sermon, is the most ancient Christian document that we have. And I don't know about you, uh, but this cultural moment that we're living in makes me feel uprooted. It makes me feel like I'm floating in up air, in the middle of air. And so it's been encouraging to me to anchor down in this season of life in this most ancient sermon. It reminds me that I'm a part of something very, very old. I also see that following Jesus is not something new or flimsy. And I get a window into my ancient brothers and sisters in Christ. And apparently this earliest community of Jesus followers had similar struggles to us. We looked last week at the power of the tongue, our words, how they can harm others and how they can heal even. And we saw how it is impossible, humanly speaking, to tame our tongue and our own power, but that God gives his people a new tongue, a resurrection tongue, one that speaks and can even refrain from speaking uh, like Jesus. Today, James is going to expand from wise words into a wise life. This passage has been incredibly helpful, encouraging to me, even challenging I can't wait to unpack it with you all this morning. But first, let's just read the text and pray before we dig in. Again, chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock And our Redeemer, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not simply learn new information, but that we would actually see the beauty of Jesus through His Word. 
We need a breakthrough. We need an encounter. We need God for you to speak. And so we are receptive now. We are open now to what you have to say. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So when I became a Jesus follower, uh, two things happened at once. I started to love Jesus, number one. And number two, I started to love reading books about Jesus. It's hard for me actually to separate the two things, books and Jesus. Um, uh, I remember actually the first technical theology book that I read. And I remember the coffee shop in which I was sitting where I read it. I devoured the book. I even read the footnotes. And I at least thought that I followed the argument. And it was thrilling. It was thrilling to me. I remember thinking that my young sort of self, I have arrived. (laughs) I am no longer playing JV for God. I am on Jesus' varsity team. I know that sounds ridiculous. I'm just being honest. I remember feeling sad when I finished the book because I'm thinking, where do I go from here? It's like how you feel when you watch that last Netflix episode of that series you've been binging. You're kind of like, where do I go? I feel sad. I read the last Harry Potter book. What do I do now in life? I wish I could say I was exaggerating just now. But looking back to that era of my life, I can tell you that reading in books, for me, was a mixed bag. On the one hand, I've learned a lot. And God used this love of reading and this love of study in my life. But on the other hand, this love of reading had and has a shadow side. Book knowledge was for me a shortcut in my relationship to God. Book knowledge offered a quick path to what I would call counterfeit wisdom. I thought that book knowledge was the pathway to Christian maturity. But what is sad, my book knowledge actually often paved a pathway to Christian immaturity. In those days, I would go to Bible studies or home groups and hog the conversation. I would get into little debates with others about the meaning of the texts. I would clean up what I thought were inaccuracies or imprecise thoughts from others. And in the process, I'm sort of taking the Bible away from other people, essentially, in those Bible study settings, making others feel ill-equipped to engage the Bible. I thought I was showing other people my maturity when, in fact, I was showing them my immaturity. I thought the way to Christian maturity was through an act, sort of a, a accumulation and a precision of God facts, facts about, about God. But now I see, I think, the profound difference between wisdom and the accumulation of God facts. Are learning facts and true facts about God bad? The correct answer, no. Can it be a false path to wisdom? Correct answer, yes, it can. See, God calls us into relationship. Mastery of God facts does not require a relationship. 
Uh, this is like the difference between a child's pediatrician and their mother. So a pediatrician probably knows more facts about the child. They have the chart. But we would never say the pediatrician knows the child better than the mother. Why? Because mastery of facts is not how you grow a relationship. Knowledge, in other words, about God is not knowledge of God. Remember what James said earlier about demons and their sort of, air quotes, faith? Demons have all the God facts. That's kind of the humbling thing that James brings out to us. They would sort of graduate from seminary summa cum laude. They have more theological precision than the best theologian. They have the God facts. They just don't love him. They're not in relationship to him. They're in rebellion against him. Obviously, have mastery of the facts. We live, I think, in an era of facts. We live in what Evan Friedman calls a data deluge. We are literally drowning in a flood of facts. So it's tempting, I think, especially to us right now in this cultural moment, to view fact knowledge as wisdom. Fact knowledge as maturity. Listen to what psychiatrist Edward Hallwell and uh, his observation. He says, quote, Never in human history have our brains had to work so much information as today. We have now a generation of people who spend many hours in front of a computer monitor or a cell phone and who are busy processing the information received from all directions and they lose all ability to think and feel. We have so much, in other words, access to data and to facts we have access to any book on any subject from any perspective at any given time. We have over 2 million podcasts, apparently, 48 million episodes within those 2 million podcasts on probably just as many subjects and from just as many perspectives. And when you don't know a fact, you can do what I do. You can press your iPhone for an extra long period of time on the home button and ask Siri the question. And I'm sorry if I triggered your phone just now. <laughs> and you will get some facts. You will get some facts. We are flooded with facts. And so you would think we would be the wisest society to ever live because we have so many facts. But I wonder if we are becoming like my early Christian self, more and more confident and boastful in our facts and less and less wise. We may be proud of what we know, but do we show wisdom? It reminds me actually of the state motto of Missouri. Anybody from Missouri or anybody lived in Missouri before? No? Well, the state motto of Missouri is what? The show me state. We are the show me state. Apparently this means that Missourians are not gullible. So you say something and they say, show me. 
And I, I looked up the sort of history of this saying, because I was curious, and apparently there's like five or six origin stories, as you would expect. Now, one of them has to do with a train conductor in the late 1800s who would sort of not take the passenger's word for it that they have a ticket. He would go sort of uh, seat by seat and say, show me, show me, show me. Well, I want to say perhaps the same conductor would see all of our blogs, all of our books, all of our facts and say, you say you have wisdom and understanding. Okay, show me, show me. James would definitely walk into my office and see this wall of books and say, that boasts a certain amount of understanding. Now, Pastor Jim, show me. Which is essentially what James does in this passage. He's like a conductor from Missouri who wants us, who wants to see our ticket. We claim to have wisdom and understanding, but James has little stock in our claim to wisdom. He believes true wisdom shows. Just look at verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? So, so, so folks, we're boasting of their wisdom and understanding. And so James asks sort of this question, okay, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show. Let him show his works in the meekness of of wisdom. So apparently there were influencers in this early church who were feeling confident about their wisdom, confident about their understanding. They were, you know, they were correcting everybody in Bible study. They knew best because they knew most. They knew best because they knew most, and they were climbing up the ladder in this sort of earliest of church because they knew the most. But James challenges this assumption at its very, very core. Knowing the best because you know the most for James is a non-starter. He says, let me see your wisdom. How does it show in your life? He walks up to their seat and he says, show me your wisdom. It's a rhetorical challenge, actually, this first verse, verse 13, because in truth, James saw plenty already from them. And what he saw was not wisdom at all, but counterfeit wisdom. We recently uh, bought an electric piano, our family, from Craigslist. And when I gave the seller my money in cash, he took out a neon yellow marker and checked to see if my money was counterfeit. I thought that was a tad overboard. <laughs> I was kind of like complimented by it, actually. But kudos to him. He knew how to check whether or not my 20s were counterfeit or not. I don't know how to check if the 20s counterfeit. Do you? I don't, have, I don't have any idea how to check. But he does. Kudos to him. Well, James knows how to spot counterfeit wisdom. And in verse 14 and in verse 16, he is going to teach us how to do the same. Okay? So for James, there are three sort of giveaways or tells with counterfeit wisdom. Number one is the presence of bitter zeal. So in, 14, in verse 14, if you take a look again, the word we have, at least in my translation, is bitter jealousy. Uh, but jealousy isn't really a helpful translation, in my opinion, 
Because when I hear the word jealous, and I don't know about you, but when I hear the word jealous, I think of the feeling I get when my neighbor drives their sort of slate gray Toyota Tacoma by me. It's kind of my midlife crisis car, you know, I want a Toyota Tacoma. And I see this beautiful thing drive by, and I get jealous. That's what, I, that's what I think of when I hear the word jealous. And I'm sure you can think of all kinds of examples in your life. But what James is talking about here is actually way different than that. The word here is literally zeal. Zeal. They were not showing jealousy so much as they were showing bitter zeal. Or the author of Hebrews uses this word to describe fire. Bitter fire. And sometimes zeal is a good thing. The Apostle Paul says he's zealous for the Lord. And he's saying it's a good thing to be zealous. I'm on fire for the Lord. Maybe you've said that before or you've heard someone before. I'm on fire for the Lord. That is a sweet zeal. It blesses others. This is way, way different. Sometimes religious zeal can be bitter. According to James. Can I get in there? Anybody? Okay. This zealous fire does not bless others. It singes them. I like how one Bible scholar defines bitter zeal. It describes, quote, those who are quick on the draw. More than ready to fight for their rights and easily prepared to feel that they are in some way threatened by others. It is more this sharpness of spirit in personal relationships, this over-concern for one's position, dignity, rights, or whatever, that James has in mind. End quote. Bitter zeal. Now, zeal for the Lord is good, as I said, but let me ask you guys. Is your zeal sweet or bitter? Okay, that's what you think. Now, turn to the person to your left or to your right, and maybe more importantly, ask your neighbor if your zeal is bitter or sweet. I mean, it's so easy to confuse zeal with maturity, isn't it? The person who is on fire for the Lord is obviously a mature believer, right? James would say, not so fast, because there can be a bitter zeal. It's a false wisdom. It's a counterfeit wisdom. The person on fire for the Lord is not necessarily mature in the Lord. So that's the first tell that James gives us. The second tell that James gives us is the presence of what I'll call ugly politics. So, James uses the phrase selfish ambition in verse 14. Take a look. This word, the ancient philosopher Aristotle defined this word as a, quote, narrow partisan zeal of factional greedy politicians. He, he used that phrase in his book, Politics. So that's why I said when there's a sort of evidencing or a showing of a sort of narrow partisan zeal of factional greedy politicians, when that's on display in church, 
we have counterfeit wisdom on this point. That's James's argument. This word encapsulates what I would call, essentially, king of the hill-ism. Anybody play king of the hill when they were a kid? Any kids out there? You playing king of the hill right now? It's a fun game. What do you do in king of the hill? It's a pretty simple game, too. You, you sort of just push everybody down so that you stand on top. Right? Have any of you played Mafia? The game Mafia. This is a this is a fun like car ride game. Okay, same idea. You're just not pushing people physically. I recently played Mafia with some friends and even my and their children, and it's got ugly. I, and I'm embarrassed to admit it. I won one of the games, and and it wasn't because I was a good actor. I'll say. I was doing King of the Hillism. I was guilty of narrow partisan zeal, factional greed. I was engaging in ugly politics. I wanted to win at all costs. So I was willing to push people down the hill to stay on top. And that, if that's on display, James would say, okay, that's not wise. That's not the wisdom that God gives. That's a counterfeit wisdom. Which takes us to the third tell that our wisdom is counterfeit in verse 16. Take a look. For where these things, jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder in every vile practice. So disorder or chaos. The presence of chaos and then sin. So today we would say, that is a toxic environment. Why? It just feels chaotic and, and gross. I don't know. It's just toxic. And that's what James is saying. When you have these two things, this sort of partisan spirit and this sort of, um, this kind of, uh, bitter zeal, when those things are combined, you get a kind of community of it all, which is chaotic. It doesn't feel good to be around. And James says, that is a tell. This community is not fostering wisdom from above, but counterfeit wisdom. These are the three ways to spot fake wisdom, according to James. Um, so, in our family, we get a lot of Soccer replica jerseys. That's just what we do, I guess. And if you have ever bought a replica jersey of any sort, you know what you know where I'm going. There's a massive counterfeit cult, like a massive counterfeit market out there. And I've discovered that there are actual websites dedicated to discovering and helping you discover the counterfeit jerseys. Okay, and so things like different color or uh, the stitching is off or the letters are a little bit off and there's all these tells. Well, that's what James is doing for us. You say you're wise but you show something different. And so James wants us to become skilled in knowing the difference. So he tells us the tells but he also spends more time on the real thing. And that's how we'll spend the rest of our time as well. Because that's what James wants, actually. He's a pastor. He doesn't want us to just live negatively, like how to spot the bad things. He also wants us to live positively and receive and even experience in our lives and in our church true wisdom from above. And so what is the real thing? If there are three tells to spot the counterfeit, there are ten tells to spot genuine wisdom. And we're just going to rifle them off. The first tell is this. True wisdom is beautiful. Look again at verse 13. Who is wise 
and, and understanding among you. By his good, that word good, hang on to it, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So true wisdom is good conduct. True wisdom is good conduct. Good conduct, not book smarts. True wisdom is good conduct. The word here is kalos, uh, which means lovely. Lovely conduct. One scholar describes this phrase as, quote, the loveliness of goodness, the attractiveness of the good life, its wholesomeness, its helpfulness, as seen in the Lord's people, a way of life whose goodness is plain to all who see. There is a beauty, there is a beauty, a goodness on display when someone is truly wise, says James. Consider, for instance, Jesus, who is true walking wisdom, and he is a beautiful human being to ever live. People who reject the church acknowledge the beauty of Jesus. He is true wisdom. His life and the way he lived his life is good. It's beautiful. Number two, true wisdom is meek. Meek. Look again at verse 13. Who's wise and understanding among you? Well, let them by their good conduct show their works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. So wisdom, true wisdom, if it's from God, is not proud. It's sort of the opposite of those three things we just talked about. It's not proud, but it's meek. Again, consider Jesus. Jesus, in his own sort of words, says, I am meek. Not in spite of his wisdom, but because of his wisdom. Jesus served everyone he came in contact with. He was a servant. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve. You know, the night before he goes to the cross to serve you and I in his death, he even serves his disciples at the table and washes their feet. And after his death and after his resurrection, when he sees his disciples again, he serves them, he cooks them fish. Jesus is a servant. He's meek. Not in spite of his wisdom and his knowledge, because of it. Because it's true wisdom. And this idea that wisdom or maturity is actually meek was insane in the culture in which this was uh, presented. So Ben Wetherington is an expert on the first century Greco-Roman world, which this sort of uh, letter was uh, written in and existed within. And he says, well, in the Greco-Roman world, meekness or humility was usually not seen as a virtue of free persons, much less persons of social status. It was a quality expected of slaves. Jesus, however, he goes on, proclaimed an ethic of servanthood that included humility, and he even went so far to say that he came to be a servant. He turns everything upside down. In the Greco-Roman world, he turns everything upside down. In our world, true wisdom, if it is from God, is meek. It's humble. It's service. It's not noticed most of the time. Which takes us to our third tell of true wisdom. It's pure. So this word pure is in reference to the true God. So true wisdom 
is in connection to the true God. So as Lindsay read for us from Job this morning, true wisdom begins with what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not abject terror. It's not running away from God for cover. What is the fear of the Lord? It's running to God for cover. I've heard the fear of the Lord compared to how Harry Potter feels about Dumbledore. This is helpful to me. Because Dumbledore is powerful. But he's for you. Two ingredients to pure wisdom is the godness of God. He is God, we are not. If that doesn't do something in you, then you haven't, your, your God, as has been said, is too small. The holiness, the godness of God, that's ingredient one in the fear of the Lord. Ingredient two, though, is the goodness of God towards his people. So you have the godness of God and the goodness of God. You put those two things together and you have the fear of the Lord. When God is God and we see that He is for us, we experience the fear of the Lord. And that creates a purity, a, a wisdom, a true wisdom, a pure wisdom, an undivided even loyalty to God. And so true wisdom is pure. It's connected to our covenant God, who is God, but He's our God. And that's amazing. And then truism fourth is peaceable. The word is the opposite of combative. Wisdom, if it's from God, will make you more and more peaceable and less and less combative. Remember, counterfeit wisdom is quick on the draw. True wisdom is peaceable. It's slow on the draw. Very slow. Fifth, true wisdom, if you look at the text, is gentle. It's gentle. Verse 17. One scholar says this word means you are, quote, willing to yield and unwilling to exact strict claims. So a wise person navigates this fallen world with gentleness. We're not full of bitter zeal, but gentleness. That doesn't mean we're soft on truth. After all, Jesus, who was walking truth, was gentle. Paul tells us Jesus was gentle in his letter to the Corinthians. It's how we hold the truth, you see. It's how we hold it. We're not rigid, we're gentle. And that goes to the sixth point. Right after gentleness is what? Open the reason, my translation says, or teachable. You're willing to admit you are wrong when you're wrong. Uh, you're willing to adjust when you need to adjust. You're willing to hear out other perspectives. You're, you're not rigid, but you're teachable. Again, you have convictions, but you're teachable. People should feel respected and cared for even when you disagree with them. If you have true wisdom. 
truism. Seventh here is merciful. Full of mercy. The word, the word here is connects us to what James says earlier when he says that a hallmark of the true believer is merciful action. We saw that in verse 13 of chapter 2. James's logic is that if you are a true Christian, you will be merciful. Why? Because you have experienced the mercy of God in your life. You have, you have actually experienced the mercy of God in your life. God looked at your desperate need, not what you deserved. And he, and he met your need in Christ. Okay? So what that does then, is that means that, that mercy flows through others. And James kind of has a, a sort of clean logic here. If that mercy doesn't flow to others, you probably haven't received it yourself. So a dead giveaway that wisdom is counterfeit is that there is a profound and consistent lack of mercy towards those who have needs. True wisdom does two things. It sees needs, it actually sees them. It begins to see things that it didn't see before. Number two, it meets needs. Sees needs and it meets needs. That's being merciful. That's being full of mercy. You don't, the grid through which you live your life is not what does this person deserve? 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 The grid through which you live your life is what does this person need? What does this person need? What does this person need? And how can I meet this need? Oh, because God has met my need in Jesus. That's true wisdom. Full of mercy. Full of mercy. Next, what does James say? He says, full of good fruits. So true wisdom is fruitful. Fruitful. Good fruit falls from the branches of those who have spirit-generated wisdom. And here's why. Fruit is for others. This is like the, the most obvious sort of, uh, sort of truth about this fruitful analogy that I think sometimes we miss. Trees don't bear fruit for themselves. Trees bear fruit for others. And so God is going to make wise people fruitful because God is in the business of sort of rescuing us to be rescuers, rescuing us, saving us, so that we will be on mission to love Him and to love others. And to proclaim His gospel with words, but also to proclaim it with our merciful, fruitful lives. There are folks in your life that need the fruit that wisdom bears. What an amazing privilege. That God is bearing fruit in your life for that person. Next true wisdom is impartial. So we already talked about impartialism or favoritism or what's in it for me-ism. When you see a person, the first question you ask is, okay, what can they give me? If that's your first question, then you're guilty, James would say, of partialism. You're treating some people differently than other people based off of what you think they can give you in your life. And so this idea of partialism was a problem in James' church. 
They were looking at every person through this grid. And James reminds us that truism throws this grid away and instead uses the Imago Dei grid, the image of God grid. When you see a person, you're not saying, what can they give me? How can, I, how can they sort of serve as a step in my ladder of self-promotion? We don't ask that question. We ask the Imago Dei question. Do they bear the image of God, yes or no? Yes? Okay. I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to love this person. True wisdom. Right there. And then true wisdom finally is genuine. It's not hypocritical. There's a one-to-one relationship between the internal life and the external life, the private and the public. And that's James's list. It's an amazing list. In fact, I wonder if our friends and our neighbors who kind of reject Christianity out of hand, how they might reconsider if they read this list from James. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest. Well, retired pastor and, I guess, public theologian Tim Keller, he makes the point that Christianity has within its book self-correction mechanisms. When God's people behave badly, the prophets, like, you know, most of your Bible, like this whole big chunk right here, the prophets cry out. And James, with the prophets, say, counterfeit, here's the real thing. Here's the real thing. Take a look. Here's the real thing. This list is not bitter. It's sweet. It's wisdom from God. It's from above. And so what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you this morning? Two things. Recalibrate. Okay? Recalibrate and receive. Recalibrate and receive. So first, recalibrate. Every so often, I need to recalibrate the clock on my car uh, dash. Anyone else? It's like somehow creeps away. I don't know how it happens, but like all of a sudden I'll be like 20 minutes fast. So what do I do? I open my phone, which I assume is connected to some atomic clock in some laboratory somewhere. and is accurate. Who knows? But I assume it, and I adjust, I recalibrate my clock to connect with the true time. We need to recalibrate our definition of wisdom and maturity with this list. This is the atomic clock. This is the atomic clock. Okay? Uh, This is the good life. This is the good life. This is the mature life. This is the good life. This is what Christian maturity is. Okay? And so we we just have to recalibrate. And so let me just ask you a question. How do you define maturity in the Lord right now? Like, just close your eyes and think of, like, a few words. What are those words? Okay. Now, what is... uh, James said. <laughs> what does James say? And allow James' authoritative list to correct and to adjust our vision of the good life. Notice what's not on James' list. Wit is not on James' list. Wit. Good looks, power, strength. I mean, in an age of 140-character hot takes and Instagram and whatever else, it will be tempting to overvalue things that James describes as counterfeit. And to maybe even slip some of these um, counterfeit tells into our list of what maturity is. 
and we can lose the real thing altogether. So how do you define the good life? How do you define wisdom? Number two, who do you consider wise in your life? Who influences you? Who are your heroes? Are they wise, according to James? According to James. I didn't ask, are they smart? Are they witty? Are they inspiring? I didn't ask that. I asked, are they wise? You know, we're so careful about eating clean. What if we were as careful about the voices that we feel? So, recalibrate. Recalibrate. Use this list. You know, write out the words. Memorize the words. If there's anything about the sermon, unpacking these words that are helpful to bring greater depth of meaning to the words and write those words down. Anything to help you remember, this is the filter. This is the definition of wisdom. Let's recalibrate. Now, secondly, receive. Okay, so we want to receive true wisdom. So here's the last point, really. And this is the good news, actually, of this passage. The good news of this passage is that we are not in charge of drumming up true wisdom. Now, that might offend our ego at first. Wait, what? But once you accept the fact that you cannot sort of make yourself wise, it's really good news. And here's why. Because God gives it. We know this already from James 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, what do we do? We ask God for it. That by itself is, is, is humility in action. It's hard on the ego. Exactly. It's hard on the ego. Exactly. You've got to go to the Lord and say, I cannot generate this. I cannot generate this. See, James tells us true wisdom, even in this passage, is something we receive. True wisdom is top down, not bottom up. He calls it wisdom from above, and then he implies that anything else is wisdom from below. It's false wisdom. It's counterfeit. And then he also implies that true wisdom is outside in, not inside out. What do I mean by that? It's not something we sort of create out of sort of uh, our hard work or maybe our upbringing. No, in fact, James tells us, as we saw, that true wisdom is from God. And he says so in verse 15, because what we drum up, the best we can do, he says, is natural or earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. And I think of his analogy of demons earlier, how they were sort of book smart, but they weren't wise. And earthy just means you're living in a, in a kind of a concrete dome if you're trying to gin up this, this wisdom on your own. Because wisdom comes from above. And unspiritual just means there's the Holy Spirit at work in this. This is kind of the best you can do with our fallen flesh. True wisdom, though, is outside in. It's given from God. So receive it. Receive it. Which is to say, receive Jesus. Because after all, is he not perfect wisdom? Every single one of these words is Jesus. Every single one. And united to Jesus, we receive his wisdom by the Holy Spirit. And so the way you grow in this is by relying on Jesus. 
true wisdom. That's the implication for you. Recalibrate and receive. But I think there's also huge implications for this church community. Uh, this final verse, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This, this final verse could be a vision statement for our church, frankly. It's, it's an image of the future. It's a, it's a farming image of a harvest. And, the, and, and, he's, and James is saying like, okay, if you are not just individuals working on your own sort of wisdom, but if you're a community of wisdom, it's going to be like this amazing harvest of righteousness, which is to say all of these things that he just laid out for us. The sort of peaceableness of the spirit. When sown by peaceable people, you get this harvest, this beautiful, beautiful garden. Who's harvesting a garden? Anybody? It's like, is it fruitful? Is it, is it what you hoped it would be? Probably not, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> James is more hopeful than you, okay? And he's going to say, this harvest will grow out. And what if we prayed for a harvest like this in our church community? What if we weren't just individually wise, but corporately wise? I think we'd be marked by at least three things here. We talk a lot about emotional health. A wisdom culture, in other words, prioritizes what we've heard called emotionally healthy spirituality. Listen to this quote from Alfred Plummer. Quote, if we begin with the intellect, we shall very likely end there. And in that case, the man is not raised from his degradation, but equipped with additional powers of mischief. That just that says it all. In other words, wisdom involves facts, but is not reducible to facts. This means that if we're going we're to be pursuing emotional health and spiritual growth, what the ancients called, what Scripture calls, fear of the Lord, a holistic personal response to God's godness and God's goodness. The wisdom culture is not anti-intellectual, but it is not sola intellectual. It's not just or the brain. Emotional health. I think number two, something I've heard called beautiful orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means correct worship or correct thinking or correct doctrine, we would say. But I think this harvest, if it were to have its way in our church, is that we would hold on to the truth, but we would adorn it well. We would wear it well. In ways that are wise, actually. Beauty matters to James. It's actually interesting, and if I had more time, I would walk through this, but the list itself is beautiful. In the ancient Greek, James is, is being poetic, actually. Every word in his list that we see and we walk through in verse 17 has alliteration and rough. The words sound the same. And it's a very intentional sort of nod. I heard one person write, I read one person say, you know, if James is talking about heavenly wisdom, he wants to also make sure it sounds heavenly. Which to me is this great, beautiful sort of, uh, sort of nugget in this text that James is concerned about beauty and truth together. And uh, so often those things get separated. You have the truth people and you have the beauty people and never the twain to meet. I messed that one up. Never the twain did they meet. But what I'm trying to say is we divorce these two things that for James, they're married. They're very much married. 
It's a beautiful list. Not just what it describes, but the list itself that's far is beautiful. And the second thing is, James models beautiful orthodoxy in his life. Remember who James is, the brother of Jesus. But what does he describe himself as in the very first verse of his sermon? A servant of Jesus. He could, if he wanted, be the bitter, zealous one in this text and say, listen to me, I am the brother of Jesus, you know? Like, I, I grew up with the guy. I, you know, I'm, I should be boss, you know? I'm, I'm the brother of Jesus. What does he say, though? He shows wisdom and the beauty of wisdom by saying, I'm James, by the way, servant of Jesus. Doesn't even say he's his brother. I think it's beautiful. Isn't that leadership we're all hungry for, really? And then lastly, I think our church would be characterized by radical humility. Uh, The opposite of pride. Because our wisdom isn't self-generated in this text, uh, grace will make us wise. Um, And grace makes people humble. Pride makes people anti-wise. Because at root, what you have with pride is a sort of salvation by works. I am saving myself by what I know. I am saving myself. My okayness is rooted in where I am in the social pecking order. My okayness is in something that I am doing or that I am in control of. And when we see this vision of wisdom, suddenly that rug gets swept out from underneath us. And we simply say, I don't have wisdom, Lord. Would you give me wisdom? And that's humility. And that's humility. And that's what our church could be. Our church could simply be humble. Because Jesus saved us by grace. We're born again from above. As Jesus would say. And so we receive from above the same wisdom. This makes us humble. So Jesus, would you indeed do this in our midst? Yes, help us spot the counterfeit. But Lord, more importantly... Help us hunger for the real thing. And in our hunger, would you give it, Lord, as we ask for it. In Jesus' name, our true wisdom. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.